This episode was recorded on October 18th, 2023. The whole Middle East changes. We tear down the walls of enmity. In September, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu stood in front of world leaders at the UN General Assembly and displayed two maps. One showing Israel's isolation at the time of its creation in 1948, and another showing the Arab countries that have normalized relations with it. He referred to a new Middle East. That came amid US-led talks aimed at Israel and Saudi Arabia establishing formal ties. But today, as we record on October 18th, we are in a different reality. The Israel-Gaza war has created a turning point for the region and the world, putting peace on the back burner. The proximate cause for this round of violence, of course, is the unprecedented attack launched by Hamas and other Palestinian militant groups in southern Israel on October 7th, in which they killed more than 1,000 Israeli civilians and took nearly 200 hostage. In the days since, Israel has been bombarding Gaza from the air, killing thousands more. Two million Gazans face mass displacement as hundreds of thousands of Israeli soldiers prepare to mount a ground invasion of the Gaza Strip to wipe out Hamas for good. The U.S. has been uncompromising in its full-throated support of Israel, saying it has the right to defend itself. Last week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Israel along with six Arab countries, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, Bahrain, and Qatar. President Biden is visiting Israel as we speak, His planned visit to Jordan called off after the bombing of a hospital in Gaza that killed hundreds of Palestinian civilians. U.S. and Arab officials alike all fear the same thing, the explosion of what is, for the moment, a relatively contained conflict into a full-blown regional war. That fear is amplified by Hamas issuing a call for others in the region to join it in fighting Israel. And then there are the statements being made by the government of Iran, which controls a number of militias in Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, threatening consequences if Israel makes good on its threats to send soldiers into Gaza. Hezbollah, the Iran-backed militant group that currently dominates Lebanon, has already engaged in deadly clashes with Israeli soldiers on the Lebanese-Israeli border. Where does that leave us? Are we on the cusp of an Israeli occupation of Gaza? Can Hamas resist such an occupation? And will it succeed in turning this into a multi-front war that pulls in Lebanon, Syria, and maybe even Iran? This is Beyond the Headlines, and I'm Suleiman Hakimi. And in today's episode, we're asking whether the Israel-Gaza war is the start of something much bigger. I'm joined here today by Tahani Mustafa, Palestine analyst at the International Crisis Group, who's based in London, and Michael Young, our Lebanon affairs columnist for The National, who's speaking from Beirut. Tahani, there's, uh, there was a lot of talk last week about a ground invasion by Israeli forces into Gaza. Um, that was uh, being spoken about with a lot of urgency, but here we are now um, 11 days on and no such ground invasion has manifested yet. Uh, do you think Israeli forces really are ready for a ground invasion? No, I do not. Uh, Israel is not the army that it was back in in the 80s. It wasn't. It, it's not the army that it was during the Lebanese war or even prior to that. Uh, Israeli forces do not have the capacity for, um, and I don't mean in terms of numbers or arsenal, uh, but I mean in terms of uh, actual strategy and being able to stomach losses. Um, and we've seen that over the last year, just through. Israeli ground invasions uh, through its search and arrest operations in the West Bank, where, uh, you know, in places like Nablus, in places like Janine, you've had 
militant groups, uh, fighters with far less capabilities and, and military know-how as Hamas, who have managed to give the Israelis, uh, you know, quite a showdown. Uh, we're talking about five kids under the age of 25 who were able to, to, to give Israel, one of Israel's most elite uh, security forces, uh, a, a serious shootout for five hours in the old city of Nablus. And that was just during a search and arrest operation. Uh, when it comes to urban warfare, the Israelis do not possess uh, a, a, a kind of strong point here, uh, which is why Hamas has been inviting Israel to a ground invasion since the start of this conflict, because they know that's, that is Israel's weak point here. Um, and and to, to be frank, no one knows. No one knows the terrains of Gaza as well as an organization like Hamas. So it, it really is their their strong point. So you think Israel can't stomach a ground invasion, but does that mean that one is extremely unlikely to happen? I think so. I mean, I think uh, what we've seen over the last week is uh, the lack of rational military um, thinking or strategy from Israel. What we have seen is an Israeli government that's hell-bent on revenge, uh, and that's been pretty uh, indicative uh, from its statements that we've heard from politicians uh, that have called for the violation of, of the international laws of war, that have called for genocide, that have called for introducing a Nakba 2.0. We've seen uh, divisions between the security establishment and the politicians. Um, you know, we've, we've seen that in the way that Israel has gone about conducting itself in this war. Uh, I think a lot of the, the rhetoric around a ground invasion has been just that rhetoric, because uh, like I said, Israel does not have the capability of, of, of engaging in urban warfare. Um, and, you know, and I think it has learned that lesson pretty well in the West Bank, uh, you know, j just July, um, back in July, when it when it tried to, do, to take out the Janine Brigades, that was a very good lesson for Israel, uh, where we saw its ground troops having to call in aerial reinforcement. And you're talking about a territory that is far smaller uh, than, than the Gaza Strip. And you're talking about a group that once again, it, it pales in comparison uh, to a group like Hamas. Yeah, so let's talk about Hamas's capabilities then. I mean, in the event that Israel were to go beyond, let's say, just an air campaign, um, I mean, what are Hamas's capabilities like? Can they handle that sort of thing? Are they able to actually come out of this conflict stronger? I don't think that's how Hamas is really thinking about this. You know, this isn't about numbers uh, or about uh, necessarily, you know, coming out with um, in, intact. I think for Hamas, ultimately, this is uh, a make it or break it moment for them. You know, the group has for a long time been trying to relinquish its governing authorities over the Strip. It's been looking to to um, refocus its uh, logistics and capacity on on broader um, Palestinian politics. For Hamas, this is more about trying to exert worthwhile concessions from the international community and Israel. It's about shaking up the status quo, um, and it's really about transforming the way that the international community and Israel deal with Palestinian demands and, and deal with Palestinian rights. That is what Hamas is after here. Uh, so whatever you, the outcome may be, this isn't about how many numbers it comes out with. Ultimately, it's about whether it is able to withstand the military and economic pressure uh, Israel is bringing to bear and come out of this with worthwhile successions. And that will have transformative implications for Palestinian politics, um, not only in the sense of transforming the way that Palestinians start thinking about organized armed resistance and, and assessing its cost and benefit, which for a long time, uh, for the last decade and a half, Palestinians have been very quiet, especially in the West Bank. We've obviously seen a shift in that with the new generation of armed groups and armed resistance fighters. Um, but that could draw in more numbers if, if Hamas succeeds here. And more importantly, it will also change the leadership landscape. Uh, and that may not necessarily be uh, you know, Hamas taking over in, in terms of Palestinian leadership, but it will mean that Palestinians will demand more legitimate leaders. So one of the narratives that Hamas has put out in the past week 
is that um, its operation was initially intended to target military bases, and then it was so successful um, unexpectedly that other groups like Palestinian Islamic Jihad were able to pile on, and then that explains the you know the catastrophe that was seen um, for Israel on on October seventh. Um, I mean, that would suggest if that's true. Um, a kind of tacit admission by Hamas that actually this is not a united front. It's a sort of free-for-all. Um, I mean, if that's the case, do you think that there's any chance of of other militant groups in Gaza maybe escalating the war to a place that Hamas doesn't envision it going? No, I mean, I, that's ultimately not really how Hamas operates. Hamas is very calculative, very strategic. So to to kind of by the claim that this was done without the involvement of other factions is outright false. And in fact, uh, Hamas and other factions have come out to talk about um, the coordination uh, that had gone on. Uh, what was unplanned was the influx of unarmed civilians that went in. Um, and then some of the the kind of atrocities we've been hearing about. Um, again, that was, Hamas does bear some responsibility for that, but to to, to fully uh, establish you as accountable is, is still unclear. Um, but whether those factions will then engage in assaults uh, outside of uh, Hamas's purview is, is very unlikely. You know, that's not how it's worked before, um, and that that won't be, I'm sure, how it works afterwards. You know, whatever um, whatever their their disagreements or divisions tend to be, uh, Hamas ensures that all factions operate under its command. They have a joint operations room. Uh, they have ways of ensuring that things are done jointly. Decisions are taken collectively, um, and most factions do not operate outside of of um, outside of the framework that Hamas permits. So shortly after it launched its attack, um, the Hamas uh, political structure called for other neighboring countries to join in its fight against Israel. Um, I mean, based on what you know about Hamas, its relationship with other countries in the region, do you think, um, particularly with respect to Iran and its proxy groups, uh, do you think that that's maybe just more rhetoric for Hamas or is there some meat there? I mean, it's a bit of both. I think Hamas we're, we're betting on when it comes to other regional states, I mean, outside of, of, of uh, Hezbollah and Iran, uh, if we're talking about Jordan, Egypt, uh, and, and other neighboring states, I think what they were counting on was public fury, you know, uh, in many ways, trying to get um, public opinion on their side, trying to instigate, you know, people to start moving, uh, whether it's uh, through rallies, demonstrations, whether it's uh, trying to get people within or, or groups within the West Bank to, to start, um, you know, rising up. Uh, I think that's what Hamas was counting on. Um, when it comes to, to its, what they term the axis of resistance, Hezbollah, Iran, I mean, look, Hezbollah has made it clear they are not an impartial actor here, that they are on the sidelines watching um you know, if if Israel does take the decision to go in for a ground invasion and to try and eliminate Hamas, it's very unlikely that you're going to have Hezbollah and Iran just stand by and let that happen. Uh, you know, at least for the sake of saving face, they cannot allow that to happen. Michael, you um, write about Hezbollah a lot for The National um, in your uh, biweekly column. Uh, I mean, do you agree with that assessment? Do you think that um, in the event of a of a more escalated conflict between Israel and Hamas, that uh, Hezbollah could afford to um, to participate? You know, and I agree with uh, Tahani, and and they said virtually as much. I mean, they will not allow. Uh, um, they will not. They will intervene. Um, you know, if if uh, the Gaza Strip is if the Israelis invade. The question, to my mind, the real question here is. What is the nature of their intervention? 
um, you know, we have to understand that we tend immediately to go to the apocalyptic scenario um, in terms of, you know, how the war will be conducted by Hezbollah. Um, I think Hezbollah is very much aware of the potential for the destruction of Lebanon, uh, Israel's destruction of Lebanon, Lebanon's infrastructure, its airport, and and the repercussions this will have on communal relations afterwards. Even, even I think within the Shia community, there is a great deal of fear of what may happen, uh, you know, because this time, unlike 2006, uh, there will be no assistance to Lebanon after, the day after. Uh, I'd be very surprised if there is. So the thing is, they will intervene, but I, my feeling is that their intervention, while it may expand, it may expand to the Syrian front, it, there is a possibility, especially if uh, Hamas is doing well in Gaza, to sort of maintain it under the, the red lines. In other words, they will not target necessarily Israeli strategic targets and Israeli cities. I mean, I think this is where we can say the threshold below which it may be, I mean, we can argue this, but it's arguably this would be, this would maintain the fighting within certain acceptable red lines on both sides. This is what we've seen in the last 10 days. Now, in terms of uh, whether Hamas, if, if Hamas is threatened, uh, Hezbollah would escalate, I don't know. It may, it may very well. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty here. And we do have to understand that, um, you know, Hezbollah is, of course, coordinating with the Palestinian factions. Um, there was indeed a joint operations room, but it's also in, in communicating with the Iranians. And I think, you know, there is there has to, there must be there a lot of discussion of what are the different uh, thresholds. But I do believe, yes, that if they go into Gaza, Hezbollah cannot remain idle. And I think it may even choose to widen the front to uh, the Golan front. Yeah, so in the event that that, that would happen, I mean, uh, how much do you think there can... It, basically, this axis of resistance, I mean, how coherent is this axis really, Michael? Um, I mean, between Hezbollah and these groups in, in Syria, which doesn't just include you know Hezbollah-affiliated groups, but also... Um, Iranian-controlled militias uh, independent of Hezbollah. I mean, is this really a coherent axis of resistance? I think it's fairly coherent, yes. And I mean, remember, Hezbollah has played a, a major role uh, in terms of relations with the with the Hashid in Iraq, and as well as with the Houthis in, in, in Yemen. Hezbollah has, has been, you know, in close ties with all these groups. So I think yes, it's a fairly coherent, uh, cohesive rather, uh, a group of of uh, militants. I mean, of mi different groups. Yes. This is a question for both of you, but I think we'll start with um, with Michael. I mean, Syria has been through um, nearly a decade of civil war now. Do you think there's any appetite at all uh, within the Syrian regime to see this escalate um, for or for Syria-based groups to to participate with the regime's support? Uh, to be honest, I don't really think that this is a major, it's up to the Syrian regime to decide this. I mean, I think Iranian influence in Syria is significant. And in terms of the area, especially the Golan area, it's, it's obviously in Syria's interest to keep the issue of the Golan on a, at least on a, on a low burn. You know, the United States uh, recognized um, Israel's annexation of the Golan during the Trump administration. So I don't think the Syrians 
they certainly have an interest in showing that this front has not been quieted down, um, you know, as a as a bargaining chip in there. Uh, so, no, I don't really see that would be an obstacle from the Syrian regime. But I'm not sure that this is going to have a major impact. Ultimately, if the Iranians see a strategic interest in opening the Golan Front, uh, I think they will they will be able to do that. Do you agree with that, Tani? I mean, yeah, I, I would. I, I, I do agree with Michael's assessment. I think one one front that no one is really uh, kind of paying any attention to at the moment, which I find odd, is... Um, also the West Bank, where we've seen rallies, demonstrations, we've seen clashes, we've seen uh, calls for uprisings like yesterday in Janine, um, you know, and, and that is going to be a, a real difficult front for Israel. I mean, already Israel was struggling and grappling to try and contain it, especially with the with the rise of armed groups. Um, they may have succeeded temporarily uh, back in July, but that sentiment and that frustration was still very much felt. Um and for the, I mean, for Israel, the West Bank is is a is an even bigger security problem because don't forget it has seven hundred and fifty thousand settlers based there. So, you know, if things do start to seriously kick off, uh, as as people are, are are starting to, you know, yesterday we were hearing uh, again proclamations of attempting to instigate uprisings and and so forth. If if that does kick off, that is going to be a huge, massive security threat along with uh, the Gaza front and and potentially bringing in its regional neighbors as well. Yeah, I mean, there's also talk of, um, obviously, of Palestinians from Gaza being displaced into Egypt um, if Israel reaches some sort of agreement or continues its air campaign. Is there any fear, Tahani, of uh, Gaza's militancy in that scenario of spreading uh, to the Sinai, or do you think the Sinai can realistically just be kept as a humanitarian um, situation? That's almost playing on the Israeli narrative or reconfirming the Israeli narrative, which is also what um, both Israel and Egypt are using to justify, to to, to prevent uh, a humanitarian corridor for, for fleeing civilians into the Sinai, is this idea that they could then drag in the threat of, of militancy into Egyptian borders. Um, you know, I think the real concern and for many Gazans is, is not necessarily that element of, of bringing those milita- that militancy element in, into Egyptian borders, I think for many, it's it's the fear of being made permanent refugees. No one wants to go to Egypt. You know, we have our own analyst on the ground right now, and he is in the very a uh, very similar situation to other Gazans. He lived in the Ramal neighborhood, was was pushed south, and is absolutely adamant on not ending up in Egypt. You know, he along with many others do not want to end up in the Sinai. This isn't about bringing that militant element into Egyptian borders. This is a, you know, you're, you're talking about something far beyond that. Uh, this is about Palestinians being made refugees once again. Um, and, you know, that if that does end up happening, if we do see a displacement of people, this isn't going to be about Hamas. This is going to be about 2.3 million frustrated people who want to go back home. And that is going to be that is going to have huge security ramifications, but it won't be about Hamas. It will once again come back to the fact that Palestinians are dealing with an incredibly violent occupation that is trying to displace them, push them off their land. And with or without Hamas, people will find a way to push back against that. So even if you don't have Hamas in the Sinai, you will have other groups, you'll have other militants, you'll have other resistance fighters. I mean, the Israeli government, do you think that there's any way that that they could potentially escalate this conflict based on the mood in Israel right now? I mean, we've talked about how they're reluctant to do this ground invasion. Um, you know, you say it probably won't happen. Uh, they'll continue with their air campaign. But are there any other military options that they might pursue uh, that might heat this up? Or do you think it's it's likely to just sort of fizzle out? 
I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, this is, uh, I think ultimately for Israel, it's about guaranteeing that they pursue a military strategy that incurs maximum impact with the least amount of costs for Israel. So if they have to stick to aerial bombardment, which is what it seems like they're most likely to do, then so be it. Um, but whether you can actually root out an organization like Hamas through aerial bombardments is another thing entirely. Um, to, to actually expect or put the onus on this government, and I, I mean specifically this extreme right-wing government, um, to, to try and act in good faith and, and, and try, try and temper temp- public fury and, and, and to try and kind of cool temperatures on the ground and, and instigate a ceasefire, it's very unlikely. I mean, for the last week, we've heard nothing but genocidal statements coming out from this government um, to the extent where they're also sidelining some of the more, more rational elements within their security establishment. For the last year, we've seen this government, um, you know, it, quite literally exasperate a lot of the threat within the West Bank. You know, these groups propped up in 2021, but with this current government, you've seen uh, the support for armed resistance grow exponentially in the West Bank uh, to the extent where today a group like Hamas was never popular, by the way, outside, I mean, even in Gaza, Hamas was never popular. But today it has managed to draw in segments of, of, of the Palestinian population that do not adhere to its ideology, but support what it's doing, precisely because this current government that the international community are trying to put the onus on in doing the right thing and acting in good faith is the exact reason why we've ended up where we are today. In the West Bank for the last year, you've seen nothing but targeted assassinations, increased search and arrest operations that can number anything between 500 to 600 per week. And we know every, every time Israel has a search and arrest operation that brings fatalities, we've seen continued land grabs. We've seen the desecration of holy sites in Al-Aqsa. These are all elements that Hamas has used to justify what it has done this time around. So this goes well beyond Gaza, not to mention the continued stringent uh, uh, blockade that, that this current government has continued to impose on Gaza, the worsening conditions for prisoners uh, in Israeli prisons. Um, you know, th- this is a government that does not know how to back off when it needs to. It does not know how to cool temperatures on the ground when it needs to. This is a government that often tends to accelerate a problem uh, rather than than to, to de-escalate. So it's very unlikely. Well, what does that acceleration look like? I mean, if you take it to its logical conclusion, so say this war, you know, it, there's an aerial bombardment campaign, it eventually dies down as the previous ones have, and then you're sort of back to the status quo of the Gazans being sort of kettled into the strip and um, Hamas maintaining its control in, in the Gaza Strip um, and, you know, security operations continuing in the West Bank and settlements expanding. I mean, if you accelerate all of this, um, is this cycle just going to go on and on and on infinitely? Or is there, a, is there some sort of climax or reckoning coming? I think this should have been the reckoning, honestly. This really should have been the the reckoning. I mean, these are unprecedented times where Hamas has managed to accomplish something no resistance movement in Palestinian history has, which is to uh, quite literally shake uh, the entire security infrastructure and, and, and mindset of the Israeli establishment, thinking that it can act with complete impunity. And I think for many Palestinians, that was what was so powerful about the October 7th uh, events, was that for the first time, it was uh, Israelis, not Palestinians, incurring uh, the vast majority of casualties during the the initial blow, not to mention the fact that Gazans were able to break through uh, the very barriers that have kept them imprisoned for the last 17 years, to to take over the very administration in the Southern Command that has kept them in that prison for the last 17 years. 
Um, so this, I mean, this is going to have huge ramifications. I can't imagine things going back to normal. You know, even our own analyst who is there right now, who, who says he, if he has a home to go back to, he cannot imagine after what has happened, things going back to normal. You know, this has been an incredibly traumatic experience for Gazans, never mind the, the sheer scale of destruction, which is going to take, you're not talking about decades to try and and um, and, and fix but just you know, just the if we're talking on the, on the, on a subconscious level, this is going to take you know decades to really heal and come out of this. Okay, and this has only fueled um, public fury towards Israel uh, in in Gaza, in the occupied West Bank, uh, in the West Bank today. You know, there was a the, the rise of, of 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 militants was almost starting to, to to come under control before this operation and now you're starting to see again that shift where younger generations feel like the only way Israel responds is through violence you know Palestinians were saying something um, I recall back in March when I had started working on the armed groups and trying to understand why Palestinians were reverting back to these old tactics of armed resistance and they'll tell you it's because they've had a conciliatory leadership for the last three decades and it has brought them no closer to a viable state they've seen increased loss of land increased loss of lives Imagine growing up in a place like Gaza or Janine or Nablus, where you are never allowed to go to Al-Aqsa or, or Jerusalem or to the beach in Haifa. They feel like when, when things are quiet, the whole world just ignores them. Their priorities go elsewhere. But when things kick off, that's when the rest of the world starts to paying attention. And, and that sentiment was very much echoed in Gaza, where for the last year or so, people have forgotten that Gaza is under a blockade up until now. Um, so no, I mean, this this is going to have transformative ramifications, especially for uh, the way that Palestinians now want to start dealing with Israel. Michael, um, the, the memory of Lebanon's civil war that involved uh, both Palestine and um, or Palestinian groups and Israel um, is, uh, you know, this is a generation ago in the minds of Lebanese. Um, do you think the mood in Lebanon is that this will also be some kind of watershed moment, um, or or is Lebanon still too far removed uh, from the intimacy of this for, for that to happen? No, no, certainly we're not far enough removed, and uh, definitely, but you see, it's a bigger problem in Lebanon. The problem in Lebanon, and in a way it can be traced back um, to essentially the rise of Hezbollah after 2005 and its dominance of the Lebanese system, and then in 2019, the economic collapse of the country. Both these things, in a way, made many Lebanese, especially minority groups, you know, the Christian groups, and but even the Druze, the, to, to a certain extent, and even to an extent, the Sunni community, which today is without a leader, um, without a leadership, really, to make them wonder what is the Lebanese social contract, okay? And, um, and to become very doubtful about this Lebanese social contract. In other words, we don't really see a society that is functioning anymore as sort of a cohesive unit. You know, we don't, we're not all on the same wavelength. And what makes me worry is that if there is a full-scale destruction of the country in the event of a war, it's going to be very difficult to put the country back together again. Okay, the country will continue to exist in the way it exists, but it'll continue to exist, but I think not in the way it existed. I, I think that, you know, the idea that Lebanon can continue to remain under the hegemony of essentially an armed group uh, that is allied to Iran and to other regional forces, uh, completely indifferent to the future of Lebanon, at least this is the perception, I'm saying, of many groups. This it's going to be very difficult to persuade many of Lebanon's minority communities to accept this. 
And I mean, Lebanon is what? It's a series of minorities. Now, I, I believe that Hezbollah is quite aware of the mood in the country. Okay, They understand this. They don't really want to reach a stage where, uh, like the PLO during the civil war, in 70 between 75 and essentially 82 the plo was eaten up by the lebanese civil war at the end of the day the civil war in lebanon ended up um, wounding the plo and um, you know they were expelled by the israelis in 82 arafat came back in 83 and he was ultimately expelled by hafiz al-assad but the point i'm making hezbollah is very cognizant that you know if if it gets caught up in internal strife inside within Lebanon, this could actually detract it from its regional mission or its regional role. So it doesn't want to get involved in this. And this is why I think the big question today is how does it maintain um, its power and its uh, relationship with the so-called mahwar al-muqawami, the resistance axis on the one hand, but at the same time maintain its, you know, its, 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 significant influence inside the country. This is the big trick for, for Hezbollah. And um, if it becomes a regional war, I'm, I'm not sure that it will be able to, you know, to to walk the tightrope successfully. So wh what I'm hearing is uh, basically <laughs> Hezbollah doesn't want a regional war. Israel doesn't want a regional war. Hamas also doesn't really want a regional war. And yet everyone seems to be talking about the potential, including us right now, for, for a regional war. Um, so is that, do you think this is something, just both of you briefly, and this, this is the last question, but do you think, um, Tahani, this is something we can end up just sleepwalking into? Like I said, this is unprecedented times. So I think we're living in 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 a moment where everything is possible. Uh, every conceivable uh, trajectory is, is possible. So it, it really wouldn't be surprising if it is something we end up sleepwalking into, especially while the international community and specifically those states that have the uh, ability to impose an immediate ceasefire are not doing so. Uh, if anything, we've seen the international community uh, green light rather than try and de-escalate what's happening. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, everything is possible at this point. Michael? No, no, I agree. I think the fact is that all sides are locked into positions, which if these positions aren't changed, are going to lead to a regional war. But, you know, maybe there is a little corner of optimism that still is alive in me and, you know, and that says that everyone is aware of the, the great risks involved in this. And um, I hope that that will end up dominating. But but I agree with Tahani, it's, and everything is possible. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if we do uh, escalate to a, a, a broader conflict, even if the actors do try to contain it in certain places. For example, as I said, in South Lebanon. But, you know, it takes two sides to, to agree to that. So I don't know if the Israelis are willing to play Hezbollah's game. That's it for today. Thanks this week to Tahani Mustafa and Michael Young. For more information on what's happening in Israel and Gaza, follow our coverage at www.thenationalnews.com. This episode was produced by Da'a Farid, Phil Green, and Arthur Edison. And I'm your host, Suleiman Hakimi. If you want to get every episode of Beyond the Headlines as soon as it's released, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app.